Saints, I have been given the task of opening God's word for us this evening, but first, let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are high and holy. You have preserved your word for us, for our learning in all truth and righteousness in your Son. We do ask now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit's help, to open our hearts, to open our minds, and our affections for your word, that we might be made more and more like Jesus Christ, and that him alone be glorified in us. In his name, Lord, we humbly ask these things. Amen. Well, oftentimes when we come to the later months of the year, it is most people's custom to take some time to reflect on the previous months of the year, to see if the year has gone in any way they had perceived or not. Most of us reflect in light of our goals and bucket list items with regard to studying if you are a student, or on how work has been like. You may reflect on your relationships with your colleagues and projects that you were able to finish or abandon. We may even reflect on those trials in our lives which have been heaviest to bear or even persevere through. Well, this evening, we would do well to consider those reflections which are far more excellent and call for more attention. And they are the vehicle by which we are drawn nearer to the Lord. And I believe it is in light of these meditations that all other meditations should find their root and cause us to respond to the Lord's mercy. And so today's passage is Psalm 24, and we'll consider the entire psalm. So if you're able to, please turn with me to Psalm 24. And I'll read for us from verse 1. Reading in the English Standard Version, Psalm 24, verse 1. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is God's holy word. 
Thanks be to God. The occasion for this psalm is one of public worship. And it has been understood that David wrote it to celebrate the entrance of the Lord in Jerusalem during the time when they brought in the Ark of the Covenant. We remember from the series we went through in the book of Chronicles that David, after he was made king, conquering many battles by God's help, he built houses for himself in Jerusalem. And he had a desire to have a dwelling place, a sanctuary for the ark of God, so that all Israel may seek God's presence and once again have proper worship. Thus David wrote this psalm as a contemplation for the congregation of Israel to consider what has happened before their eyes. The king of glory has entered Jerusalem. What worship is to be offered to him by his people as they consecrate themselves for his possession? And what privilege do they have that they are his people and a light to the world? There are three contemplations I believe we can glean from this psalm to help, to help guide our reflections and fix our eyes to the Lord. We'll first look at contemplating on God's sovereignty from verse 1 to verse 2. Then we'll consider the contemplation on God's salvation from verse 3 to verse 6. Then finally, we'll look at the commemoration that is due the King of Glory from verse 7 to verse 10. Firstly, contemplating on God's sovereignty. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 2. Let's read. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David begins his psalm with an emphatic declaration, a declaration that is worthy to be shouted from the housetops. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is stating a fact. He is saying in a way, let it be known. God has supreme ownership and dominion over what is created. And those who dwell in the world, those who dwell therein. And you see, he uses, and you see that the word that he uses for the Lord there is in all caps. He uses the covenant name of the Lord, the name of the God of Israel, as if to say to the congregation, the Lord, Yahweh, the true living God, is the transcendent creator. In verse 2, he says, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David has in mind the creation account in Genesis where God separated the dry land where people dwell from the body of waters, the seas, and the rivers. David is calling the people here to behold the God that they are in covenant with as the Ark of the Covenant is brought in to the pitch tent that he had made for a sanctuary. He calls them to contemplate that the God who has come to make his dwelling with his people he is the one who owns the earth to the brim. And this God has a monopoly on all the nations under heaven. He alone is sovereign. 
He is not in need, as it were, for somewhere to rest or lodge for the for an evening. Yet the Lord has chosen to make his dwelling place amongst his people. And so what can we learn from these verses? Well, we are quite privileged to be on this side of the cross because the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized God's presence among his people in a special way was a shadow. It was pointing us to the one whom God had promised from the line of David, the one whose name is Emmanuel, God with us, God with man. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the word from the beginning, who was with the Father and indeed was God. John writes in John 1 verse 1. He continues to say that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the Gospels, we see how creation is at Jesus Christ's command. He has authority on the world and the people entirely. For example, Mark records in Mark 4, verse 39, when Christ calms a raging storm and without any disagreement, the, word see, the wind ceases in obedience to his voice. Jesus Christ is the creator king. He is the one who brings life from non-life. He is the one who brings order and beauty. And where there is confusion, he is the one who brings understanding and wisdom. Where there is chaos and injustice, he brings righteous judgment. This is an excellent meditation for the Christian. What is there in creation that is so fearful or uncertain that Jesus Christ does not have authority over? Nothing. The winds are at his command. The seas obey him. And all peoples are under his authority. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For the non-Christian who might be sitting here or listening to these things, what sort of meditation should you have? What sort of things should you think about? In the first place, consider that the creator has ownership over what he has created and, co and can command of it whatever he pleases. Does not the owner of a property not have a rightful claim over what is his? He does. Consider that you are owned, you are not your own. The good meal that you enjoy, the rain that comes over you, the substance of life is a grace from your creator. You will have to answer to him. In the second contemplation from verse three, the psalmist turns the focus to the worshipers, the entire congregation. He reminds them of the theme that is across the Old Testament. He reminds them by asking a question. And this is often termed as the question of questions. And he phrases it differently twice. Let's read from verse three. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall, sorry, and who shall stand in his holy place? This question is one for the congregation of Israel to reflect upon. They are to reflect on their qualification to come into the presence of the creator king in the sanctuary. 
They undoubtedly understood from the law of Moses that anyone who ventures to enter or ascend or stand in the holy place should have an upright character. That this person should not treat with contempt that which is holy. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? God's hill in reality is the highest heaven where he has made his dwelling place. Its representative on earth was at this time Mount Zion, the towering hill in Jerusalem. Who would dare climb it? One commentator said this, it is uphill work for the creator to reach, for the creature to reach the creator. Where is the mighty climber who can scale the towering heights? Nor is it height alone, it is glory too. Whose eye shall see the king in his beauty and dwell in his palace? In heaven he reigns most gloriously. Who shall be permitted to enter into his royal presence, to stand and offer sacrifice? Well, the psalmist has asked a plaguing question, but he goes on to give an answer and describe what type of a worshiper may be permitted into God's presence. He gives this answer in verse 4. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The true worshiper's character is one of inside-outside purity, clean hands and a pure heart. The word clean, there is the Hebrew word for innocent. So it can read, he who has innocent hands, guiltless, blameless. And hands here are used for a person's actions, both toward the Lord and toward other people. Clean hands are free from sin, and a pure heart is one that is undefiled. Its desires are undefiled, its thoughts are undefiled, its affections are according to God's word. How does this worshiper act? Well, firstly, he does not lift up his soul to what is false or vain. He does not worship idols, nor riches, nor pleasures. He does not bow his knee to any other god. Secondly, he does not swear deceitfully. His tongue is not an instrument for lies. He is not double-minded. A yes is a yes, and a no is a no. The psalmist means to say that a man is not fit to draw near to God unless he is righteous in act and in word and in deed. This is a high standard. And what will such a worshiper receive from the Lord? He tells us in verse 5 and verse 6, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. In all the sacrifices that would have been offered by the Levites on behalf of the congregation, there had never been such a worshiper, a worshiper who will ascend the hill of the Lord David himself could not attain this standard. 
We know he himself had been waiting for a savior that God had promised. Jesus Christ is this ultimate true worshiper. And he is the only true worshiper who by his own sacrifice or the blood of his own has perfected those who come to the Lord. The author in Hebrews 10 from verse 19 to verse 23 shows us this truth more clearly. You may turn there if you're able and I'll read for us. Hebrews 10 verse 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What contemplations can we take away from this passage? Jesus Christ has ascended the hill of the Lord. He is the mighty climber who can scale the towering heights And he is the one who can stand in the holy place to make intercession on behalf of his people. He is this great high priest over the house of God. And so we are able to come into into the holy places of God without any fear. We have a new and living way open for us that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And indeed, we are continually in time of need. But we do have a great priest who sympathizes with us in our suffering. He is not cold nor far removed from our suffering, but he has shared in them without any sin. And to the non-Christian, here's another question. Will you venture to do the uphill work to reach the Creator? It is an impossible task. Are you able to make your hands clean or make your heart pure? Trust in the work that has already been done. Repent and believe and you will receive a blessing and you will receive eternal life from the God of your salvation. That is an excellent contemplation for you. Trust and obey, harden not your heart. The Lord blesses them that seek him, who seek his face, and hunger for righteousness. He feels such as these who humble themselves and are not prideful. Contemplate on these things. Well, lastly, we'll look at the commemoration to the King of Glory. We'll look from verse 7 to verse 10. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. The Lord, he is the King of glory. It is understood that the psalmist most probably wrote this section to be primarily sung by the Levites as they led the procession of the Ark of the Covenant into, into Jerusalem. And by the gates of the city, there would have been the city's gatekeepers. And so the choir would have shouted as they approached, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The gatekeepers would have then responded with the question, Who is this King of glory? And the Levites would have answered, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. A sharp and an authoritative answer, the Lord strong and mighty. This is a true warrior God who has fought for his people. He has subdued the nations and the enemies under them in order that his name might be spread and his glory might be made known in the earth. And in repetition, the choir would belt out again in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Met with the same question again from the gatekeepers, who is this king of glory? The Levite would have again answered, the Lord of hosts, the Lord, he is the king of glory. The phrase there, the Lord of hosts, means the God of the armies of heaven, a conqueror. So the psalmist would be saying, open wide the gates for this one, the conqueror. Open up even the ancient doors, for he is from of ancient. He is from of old. It is hard not to think of David's posture here as he writes. He grasps that God himself is the king of Israel. He, David, in a way, he takes off his crown and considers himself as pale and a representative, an earthly shadow soon passing away, and he lays his crown before God's throne and says, you, O Lord, are the king of Israel, the king of glory. So David, along with the devout Israel, Israelites, in anticipation, expected the king of glory to come, not only in outward and symbolic form of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, but in a messianic entrance. And indeed, the king of glory has come. The commander of the armies of heaven has come. That is Jesus Christ. He is the king of glory. He is the Lord, strong and mighty. He has defeated his enemies and subdued them. Satan and the principalities of the power of the air have been put to open shame in his death on the cross. In his burial and powerful resurrection, he has defeated them. Sin and death have been destroyed. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The Lord of hosts, mighty in battle, has triumphed. Victory is his. He has won it also for his people. Let the gates lift up their heads. Let the ancient doors open wide, that the king of glory may enter. This is the right and excellent commemoration or tribute that is due the king of glory. We will do well if our lips and our hearts raise up continually a song of praise to our God. He is worthy. To him our souls we should lift. To him our wills we should bow. The earth is his and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell in it. This is an excellent response to have when we consider all the events that do happen. They are for his glory. I pray to the Lord that these meditations we have considered this evening may be of great help to lifting our souls to Christ. And so we can say with the Puritan, you are good, Lord, when you give. And you are good when you take away. You are good when the sun shines upon me. You are good when the night gathers over me. Whatever my God ordains is right. Glorify yourself in me, whether in comfort or trial. You are the blessed pilot of my future as of my past. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, indeed, you are the King of glory. We are thankful, Lord, that you have made your dwelling place among your people. We are thankful, Lord, that Christ has purified our hands and, and our hearts, Lord, that we are yours, that you have made a, a people for yourself. Indeed, Lord, let the world be filled with your glory and let your name be exalted amongst all people. Indeed, Lord, you are the King of glory. Help us, Lord, to meditate on these things. Help us, Lord, to remember your mercy and your grace that you have shown to us. May you be glorified, O oh God. Amen. Amen. Indeed, may our meditations and thoughts continually be on the King of glory and the excellencies of Christ. Um, if you're able to, please stand with me and let us sing our closing hymn, All Praise to Him.
to pronounce the Lord's benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 to 25. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul 